0: Hello and welcome to the Club Chimera Martial Arts Podcast. My name is Jamie Club, and my intention with these shows is to discuss various issues in the world of martial arts and self-protection that have inspired my teaching, training and writing. If you're interested in the material I cover, please check out the show notes at the end of this program and also my website, clubchimera.com well here we are again back by popular demand i present martial movie massacre strikes back last year i hosted a two-part podcast called martial movie massacre where select martial arts contributors and i discuss tropes and cliches this time in the true fashion of media franchises we're aiming to go bigger with returning contributors and some new ones plus lots of interesting information on the history of martial arts in entertainment so it's time to put down the gloves pick up the popcorn and on with the show Today, martial arts have a strong presence in feature films, TV shows, games and other forms of entertainment. This is noticeable due to there being more conscious stylization in fight scenes. The tropes and cliches have been with us for a long time now and are easy for a lay audience to recognize. I long assumed that the martial art movie arrived in the US, became popular and naturally spilled over into mainstream genres. It seems to follow that Hong Kong cinema worked its way up from the grindhouse cinemas and grew a following through the young, oppressed underclasses that identified with the underdog heroes before Hollywood took notice. However, is this really the case or just part of the story? Many martial artists of the Baby Boomer generation and Generation X will cite arguably the definitive and most influential martial arts movie Enter the Dragon as their inspiration to begin training. As my previous podcasts on martial arts movies and a lot of my personal research into martial arts subculture has revealed, there is little escaping this film's impact. As a child it took me a while to realise how much the 1988 Jean-Claude Van Damme vehicle Bloodsport was a straight up remake of Enter the Dragon disguised as an action biopic. However, even before this seminal film was released in 1973, many martial arts action tropes were already present. After all, it's been noted that Enter the Dragon is a virtual remake of Eon Film's first James Bond movie, Doctor No. Between both of these movies, Ian Fleming gave us the James Bond novel You Only Live Twice, where the secret agent flies to Japan and receives cultural training to assimilate into Japanese society, including learning traditional martial arts. The climax of the 1964 novel involves a bow-wielding Bond in a duel to the death with his arch-nemesis Blofeld, who's decked out in full samurai armour and brandishing a katana. The 1967 movie adaptation may not have dramatised this final fight, but still strongly featured Japanese martial arts under the direction of the hugely experienced Don F. Drager. Hatsumi Masaki's Togakuru Ninja School, which was name-checked in the novel, was also involved, and Hatsumi even gets a cameo. It goes without saying that Bond was ahead of the international ninja boom of the 1980s. You will find many of the devices that would be used by Count Dante, Frank Dukes and Yoshida Kim in the story's plot. In the novel, Blofeld's guardsmen are former members of Japan's historic real-life ultra-nationalist Black Dragon Society. Frank Dukes would later claim the character, Tiger Tanaka, was inspired by his elusive sensei, where many sceptics think the reverse is more probable. The novel and film also presented the idea that ninjas were still active in the 20th century and were trained assassins. It's important to remember that when Fleming and Drager visited Japan in the 60s, the country was already into its second wave of its own ninja boom, with many myths of a reinvented tradition that had begun in the turn of the 20th century now an established part of their popular culture. We will come to the business of ninja tropes and cliches again later in this particular series of podcasts but it's worth mentioning at this point that neither Draeger nor Fleming cast the modern idea of ninjutsu in a particularly good light. Drager believed the eccentric martial artist Fujita Seiko was the last true ninja, his apparent tradition dying with him in 1966. He only describes Hatsumi as an historical researcher. Fleming's Bond, in contrast to the movie version, is not terribly impressed by the ninja training shown to him by Tiger Tanaka and his final quip on the matter is, none of your ninjas would last very long in East Berlin. Audiences to the movie, released in 1967 from an adapted screenplay by Roald Dull, were treated to a far more positive spectacle of the Shinobi no Mono. James Bond is fully immersed in the romantic traditional martial arts culture and thanks to material left over from an early draft of the screenplay written by Harold Jack Bloom our hero is aided by Tanaka's band of ninjas during the movie's final dramatic act. For many in the western world this was their first large-scale experience of seeing martial arts en masse as well as the now familiar trope of legions of shadow warriors. I'm now going to take a break and hand you over to my friend Chris Wilder. Chris was a national and international judo competitor but these days teaches pragmatic karate under the Goju Ryu discipline. He has led an extremely varied and interesting life working in political and public affairs at senate level in the US as well as travelling the world, training in different cultural disciplines. Chris, with over 17 books in print and two active podcasts, provides original and fascinating insights into martial arts and self-protection. I won't spoil the subject of Chris's chosen martial arts movie trope and cliché, as he's provided his own very elegant introduction.
1: Hey Jamie, uh, Chris Wilder here. Thanks for inviting me to participate in this white-hot rail against clichés in martial arts films. I want to dive into a topic of two rock bands and a guilty pleasure from nineteen eighty nine when we talk about the tropes, the motifs, the uh i don't know the the devices that are used, the cliches, the overplayed, played out, road hard, put away wet, and overworked memes, ideas of martial arts films, the one that is just an overarching observation to me is the quest the voyage the rebirth i'd like to take a minute and reach back to approximately 1989 and this is that first rock band thing i was talking about from the classic band white snake from the song here i go again now just listen to these words and here i go again on my own going down the only road i've ever known like a drifter i was born to walk alone because I know what it means to walk along the lonely street of dreams. And this goes on, but you can see that, well, David Coverdale and Whitesnake did a great job of encapsulating this cliche in martial arts films. It's the solo practitioner, the martial artist going down his own path, and it's always a him, and he's going deep into his art in such a manner that Only he can understand. Let's just jump cut to one of my favorite guilty pleasures of all time, and it is Roadhouse. That scene of Patrick Swayze, I think it's in the morning, and he's out practicing his Tai Chi by the lake by himself early in the morning. And he, of course, is covered in baby oil because that's what you do. And it's all about that solo journey. Whether it's the lyrics or the visuals, it's the cliche of the loner, the deeper-than-you-can-see dude who's on his own path. It's so played out in the movies that, well, another classic film that I love, Pee-wee's Big Adventure, Pee-wee tells his girlfriend, Dottie, Quote, you don't want to get mixed up with a guy like me. I'm a loner, Dottie, a rebel. It is so overplayed that Pee-wee Herman actually uses it in one of his movies. So I'm not really railing against this loner trope. It's just that it is a staple. It's like potatoes. You know, there's always potatoes on your plate. The way the potatoes are presented is just a matter of how they're prepared, how they're spiced, you know, are they mashed, diced, cute, you know, all of the things that can happen. And that's what Roadhouse is. Roadhouse is that loner trope. And you can go and you can find it in just, I think, every martial arts movie. I, I, I would challenge you to not find it. And I did say that uh, this was about two rock bands and a movie. The rock band, the Cruzados, did one of the first songs in the movie Roadhouse as you cue it up and start watching it. And I actually saw the Cruzados one time in Seattle. So that's the tie-in there. There's your two rock bands and your trope. The overplayed, overwrought, solo journey, that deep, deep martial artist. Look, we can point to a lot of things in martial arts, you know, the the uh, martial arts montage and all of these good things, and they're all great, but what I wanted to address was just that uh, cliche of that lone dude, that ronin, that guy who can only be understood by a good woman who stands by him and sees and understands. I, yeah, it's played out, but but I'm a sucker for it. Hey, Jamie, thanks for letting me do this. It's a fun little exercise. Uh, like I said, I just, you know, the overarching trope of the loner. It's one of my favorite things. And um, I was able to bring uh, Whitesnake, the Cruzados, patrick swayze roadhouse and Pee Wee herman all into one delicious nugget thanks again for the opportunity we'll talk to you soon my friend
0: thank you chris for providing this reflection on what might be seen as a hybrid of the martial arts movie trope the lone wolf and the hero's journey although certainly not monopolized by films featuring martial arts trained heroes it's a very familiar concept as mentioned earlier be sure to check chris's books out His two very professional and high quality podcasts are also must listen to experiences for all fans of my show. The back channel consists of very short discussions perfect for filling in those brief moments of dead time whereas the martial arts and life podcast is made up of lengthier interview discussions with some remarkable people. Returning to this podcast framing narrative, You Only Live Twice wasn't James Bond's first encounter with Asian or even Japanese martial arts. In the 1959 novel, Goldfinger, the story's titular villain introduces our hero to his Korean servant, Oddjob, who we are told is only one of three people in the world to possess a black belt in karate. This rather absurd claim highlights the Orientalist ignorance of the time and the awe that would follow black belts around in the West for decades to come. Never mind belts, at the time Fleming was writing his novel there were more than three established individual styles of Okinawan karate alone, without counting those separate systems imported and redeveloped in Japan. The black belt mystique trope was far more prevalent in the Western world than it was in Asian media, and this is quite clear in the number of pre-Kung Fu boom books, comics, films, TV and other fiction in the US, UK and Europe. Fleming combined the awe the black belt status garnered with the emerging interest in karate outside of Japan, In the 1950s, karate began to rival judo in popularity as an alternative and potentially more aesthetically pleasing martial art. To add further allure, karate, for all its international influence, was nowhere near as established in the Western world as judo, and therefore seemed more mysterious. Whilst on the subject of judo, it's important to note the events and influences surrounding the depiction of the Pussy Galore character in the 1964 Goldfinger film adaptation, one of the distinct differences between Fleming's character in the novel and the well-loved version played by Anna Blackman was her performance of judo techniques. This idea was inspired not by Fleming's book, but by Blackman's role as Dr. Cathy Gale in the British TV spy and sci-fi show The Avengers, whose use of judo in the action scenes became her trademark. Blackman had first learnt judo from René Bourdais, a former head of the French Resistance in World War II, when she suggested her character fought a villain, unarmed, instead of reaching for a gun in her handbag. Dr Kathy Gale was already pegged as a judoka when Blackman first auditioned and was told she would have to learn it for the role. The show was a few episodes in after introducing the new character and she had not been involved in any fight scenes yet. Blackman had found the gun-reaching scene to be implausible and suggested that she use the judo fighting skills she was supposed to know. Burday taught her a simple throw and this aspect became a regular feature of the show. Reflecting problems voiced in last year's Marshall Movie Massacre by Gretchen Carlson, Kathy Gale's other trademark, her black skin-tight leather catsuit, made carrying a gun an ungainly inconvenience, and the handbag idea was the last straw. Therefore, the unarmed fighter gimmick became a permanent fixture of the show. Blackman worked two intensive years on The Avengers, which included weekly judo lessons under James Bond fight choreographers Doug and Joe Robinson. She would get her brown belt a year after appearing in Goldfinger and also produce a book with her teachers entitled Honour Blackman's Book of Self-Defence. Blackman had set the bar high for female action stars in the West, none more so than for her replacement Diana Rigg, who would play Emma Peel, and had further elevated the action girl trope or even the affirmative action girl trope. It is worth noting two years prior to Cathy Gale's first appearance in The Avengers, that Wilma Flintstone and Betty Rubble were demonstrating their judo knowledge with a loud hockey talkie, ha on their unfortunate spouses and a burglar in the 14th episode of the first season of the animated sitcom The Flintstones. This was after five decades of jiu jitsu and judo being closely associated with both women's self defense and the feminist movement. E. Barton Wright had taught his hybrid version of jiu jitsu batitsu to women at the turn of the 20th century. Edith Garrard taught jujitsu to members of the suffragette movement just prior to World War I. One of the Hints to Ladies episodes in 1926 showed dramatized scenes of a woman defending another woman from an assailant with jujitsu before teaching her some hints back home. Pathé News presented several episodes in the 1930s of women teaching and demonstrating jiu as a means for self-defense. In 1935, actress Sarah Meyer became the first non-Japanese woman to be graded first stand which she received in Japan from Prince Nashimoto. By the 40s and 50s, judo and jiu-jitsu had gained a reputation through their inclusion in military hand-to-hand combat training and the patriarchal status quo's amusement was now tempered with caution. The 1960s saw the rise of the second wave of feminism and the affirmative action girl judokas were not lost on either the progressives or the reactionaries. Demonstrating the feelings of the time, an article in Life magazine in 1966 on Honor Blackman's Book of Self-Defence felt the need to reassure readers that Miss Blackman did not hate men. Diana Riggs' Emma Peel was a much longer-lived co-star in The Avengers, and this time the martial art of choice was not judo. It was 1965 and karate was now in vogue, and Peel's character would be seen delivering knife-hand strikes and kicks. Actress Elizabeth Shepherd, who was the first choice to play Peel, but left the production after shooting nearly two episodes, claims she suggested the character be a karateka. Riggs says she trained in karate for two and a half years, but I've found no suggestion of who her teacher was at the time. Stuntman Ray Austin is sometimes credited with having a background in karate as well as judo and gymnastics, so presumably he taught her both disciplines. Things were certainly moving fast in the 60s in the foreshadowing of the 70s kung fu boom, Emma Peel might be seen as something of a watershed character in martial arts media. She switched Kathy Gale's judo for her karate and then karate for kung fu. Ray Austin says he made the suggestion to the production to change to the kung fu style. Austin's own teacher was Chi Su, who taught Tai Chi and another internal style called Feng Shou. Sarah Kuchak, writing for Fightland, dubbed Diana Riggs' Emma Peel as television's first karate-kicking heroine. And on the 1st of May 2008, the Guinness Book of World Records presented Dame Diana Rigg with a certificate for being the first Western actress to perform kung fu on television. Guinness gives the date as 1965 on Rigg's certificate, which is a significant mistake. 1965 was the year that Rigg joined the Avengers for season four and was also the year the series had a stylistic overhaul. The entire show looked like a tourist promotion clearly designed to attract an international audience. In addition to filming on film instead of videotape and taking advantage of English countryside locations, Patrick McGee's John Steed was anglicanised to the point of parody. Violence was also toned down and interestingly this was part of the decision that influenced the producers to switch from the rough and tumble of judo's grappling to the precise, see stilted, strikes of staged karate. I say interesting because the reverse would be seen in some children's TV shows in the 1980s and 1990s. Punching and striking might have been a big part of the Master of the Universe and Spider-Man properties, but you wouldn't see them doing it much in their respective 1983-85 and 1994-98 animated adventures. Instead, you get a lot of big awkward-looking throws during the fight scenes. That being said, audiences of this era were now quite used to far more awkward-looking exaggerated throwing in their live-action TV shows. This is an on-screen trope of its own whereby fighters are clearly sending their opponents off on a suspended wire rather than applying any form of leverage. Worse still, the sequences were often shown in slow motion to emphasise the action of this non-move. The Avengers were sold to the US broadcasting company ABC and the first 26 episodes were aired on September 1966. They began shooting season 5 that same year for the first time in colour to satisfy American audiences who had been watching television in colour for a decade by now. However, there were some changes to the content. According to the Avengers Forever website, Emma Peel's strong personality traits were toned down, Kathy Gale used brute force judo considered far too violent for American tastes and while Emma employed high-tech karate in the monochrome episodes this was still considered too unladylike by Americans so the fighting mode of choice for the color season became graceful kung fu. In the fashion department the kinky leather catsuits gave way to a parade of colorful Emma peelers just as well for Dinah Rigg who disliked the leather gear. In addition to the wardrobe incongruity, this also reminds me of Gretchen Carlson's criticism of the impractical gendering of fighting styles employed by women on film. It's a trope that ended up heavily infecting the emerging Kung Fu or Chop Socky brand of action films. During the same year that You Only Live Twice was wetting the Western public's appetite for more Asian-style martial arts action, over in Hong Kong, One-Armed Swordsman gave us what Run Run Shaw described as the first Kung Fu film will discuss how wuxia movies changed dramatically with this film and began the trend that would eventually explode in Hollywood in a future instalment of this podcast series. But for now I think it's important to acknowledge that these films had an inverse impact on female action stars in Hong Kong cinema. Just as we have the emerging affirmative action girl trope in the West, women who had largely played central roles in Chinese wuxia movies up to this point gave way to more aggressive male leads in the more overtly violent films. At the same time, the women not only began taking on the age-old damsel in distress cliche that had been common in Western-style movies, but their martial arts style was distinctly feminised. Cheng Pei was the only real exception in 1960s Hong Kong cinema and came to fame one year prior to the release of One-Armed Swordsman. In the next decade, Angela Mao, dubbed the female Bruce Lee, would be pretty much the only notable lead female action star in Hong Kong martial arts cinema. It wouldn't be until the 1980s that we would get Michelle Yeoh, Yukari Oshima, Karen Shepard, Cynthia Rothrock, Kara Hui, Cynthia Khan, and Sibel Hugh proving that they were marketable as hand-to-hand combat action stars. This area of my discussion nicely moves me on to our next contributor Mary Stevens who is going to discuss the way bad martial arts techniques as well as clearly impractical aesthetic considerations undermine the action. Mary is the founder of Athena School of Karate. She's a true progressive with an amazing passion and drive for giving her students the best in practical martial arts and self-protection education. With a background as a school teacher and an avid interest in martial arts cross-training Mary provides an especially high caliber of teaching. She's also the author of two children's books that form the beginning of her Warrior Monkey series.
2: When Jamie asked me to talk about what really annoyed me in martial arts movies, I was deeply relieved. Now at last, I could confront Willem Dafoe with his unforgivable weapons tutorial, which absolutely ruined Aquaman. Don't get me wrong, Aquaman was already a terrible film, so this is not the worst crime in the world. But in the scene where Master Volko is supposedly dazzling us with his prowess, the rotation of the weapon is simply wrong. Despite being sped up to cover the actor's ineptitude, it's still clear that the transition from hand to hand is done like one of my five-year-old students would do it. Unconscious incompetence. And then he says, I will teach you this move when you have mastered the trident. No, Master Volko, please don't do that. It won't work and people will laugh at him. Later in the film, Jason Momoa does the butterfly twist correctly, so that's a clear continuity error to add to the sped up incompetence issue. This led me to think about other moments when our willing suspension of disbelief is brutally shattered by a small but ruinous detail. Not a martial arts movie, but Jurassic World is another culprit here. Genetically engineered dinosaurs, OK. Bryce Dallas Howard turns down Chris Pratt because they're incompatible. Well, yeah, I can see that. She's wrong, but that's her choice. The beef I have with her is not for her romantic choices, it's for her footwear. Look, Hollywood, I'm going to send you some high heels and have you run across a muddy field. Hell, I'll even send a creature hunting you in order to motivate you. There is no possible way you are still wearing those shoes in the next scene. No way. You lost me at stilettos. Finally, another Hollywood director's fantasy needs addressing. It's hair. If you have long hair and you're in a fight, then you need to tie it back. Ideally, plait or braid it, especially if you're going to be grappling. Again, don't get me wrong, it's still going to get messy. It will stick to your face and obscure your vision. It will get lopsided and ugly. What it won't do is swish about looking magnificent. It really won't. Props here to the makers of Birds of Prey in which Black Canary is having trouble seeing the attackers. So Harley Quinn pauses to hand her a hair tie. That is a scene which was written by someone with lived experience.
0: Thank you, Mary, for your insightful contribution. Please be sure to check out Athena Karate if you're in the Oxfordshire region and don't forget Mary's highly entertaining Warrior Monkey books. They're superb fantasy stories full of interesting characters, partly inspired by real martial artists and definitely a good enticement for reluctant readers. Please be sure to check out the work of all the contributors to these podcasts. There's a lot more to come in the next episode. I'm running several webinars every month at the moment so please be sure to book yourself a place. My gratitude to Lee Mullen for once again hosting me on a trilogy of webinars where I covered the soft skills aspect of self-protection. It was very well received and I look forward to working with Lee again as we start looking into some other aspects of self-protection and martial arts cross-training. Interrupt Karate will also be hosting me on some future webinars. I'm also going through the entire When Parents Aren't Around course online for the first time care of Ryukakan, Shurenru Karate and Forest School of Karate. My thanks to all of these schools as well as the great Athena School of Karate already mentioned in this podcast for their continuing support. Don't forget that you can book me to run webinars on a variety of different topics for your martial arts school via Zoom. I can also be booked for private lessons on Skype. During the lockdown period, so many martial artists have reached out and made a difference with their training by using the tools we have at our disposal. I've been teaching martial artists live in Denmark, Germany, Ireland and the USA. We have had martial artists from Australia training alongside those in the UK on my free YouTube training sessions, which pretty much shows how far we can all reach out to support one another. Meanwhile, there are all the usual places you can catch me on. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn and the previously mentioned YouTube. Please comment, like and subscribe to all things Club Chimera. If you enjoyed this show, all I ask is that you drop me a good review on any of the podcasting platforms and iTunes in particular. Having finished with a contribution about how bad martial arts can seriously undermine the action in drama, next episode we will delve back into the 1950s to find an example of a beloved scene from a critically acclaimed movie that might have helped allow for the reverence of the judo chop as well as the double axe handle of Captain kirk Fu, before we discuss an Overlook classic that might have taken us on a different martial arts action route. Be sure to tune in again for Return of Martial Movie Massacre. Thanks for listening.